Come on in, get cozy, and join us for an aha, unplugged, and unfiltered conversation with some of entertainment's most interesting personalities. You're at home with the Creative Coalition. And now, here's your host, CEO of the Creative Coalition, Robin Bronk. Welcome, everyone. I'm Robin, and thank you for tuning in. Today, I have the pleasure to be joined by the Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and music legend, and good friend, who I always like to spend time with, Melissa Manchester. Melissa, welcome. So you're currently on tour. Yes, I just came back from a week on the road back east, and I leave next week for the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Wow. So why do you do it? Why do you still tour? It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I do it because I love, I love my life. I love the opportunity to share my music with lots of people who have been traveling, so to speak, with me for nearly five decades now. And it's amazing. This past week, we had a really interesting opportunity in the midst of the, of the week of performing we did a concert that was that was live streamed. So so there was that. And there's that there's that new beautiful wrinkle in the world of performing. So it, it's just um, it's always interesting. It's always unfolding. And I'm always learning something. You've been doing this for a while mm-hmm. through the decades and you grew up in a musical family. Yes. Right. Yeah. I grew up in a a very creative family. My father was a bassoonist with the Metropolitan Opera and my mother was a pioneer in the fashion industry. She was one of the first women to own her own design and manufacturing companies. And uh, so my sister and I were raised in a very festive version of normal and in the Bronx and in Manhattan, which was just the, the perfect place for us to live our our young life and glean so much from that incredible energy. And you went to one of the performing arts high schools? I went to the high school of performing arts. Yes. When it was on 46th street before it moved to Lincoln center. What was that like? Any classmates that you remember? Yeah. The high school of performing arts was very interesting. It was part of the public school system. It was created, I believe in the 1940s and the building that they used which still exists. It is now the Jacqueline Bouvier Center for International Studies on 46th Street, which is in the middle of the theater district. It was built in the 1800s. It was used as a merchant marine purveyor office in World War I. I'm not sure. And then it was an elementary school and they never changed the height of the banisters or the toilets. <laughs> so That's what you remember. <laughs> very low, but it was very extraordinary. Half of the day was for academic study and half of the day was for creative study. And what I remember mostly is that everybody auditioned. It was not a private school at all. You had to do the work in order to stay there. Otherwise, you were kicked out. I mean, we started with a class of over 300, and I believe we graduated with a class of about 80. And um, wow. the thing that I love, this was long before all of the magnet schools flourished and blossomed all over the nation. This was really one of a kind. And the thing that was so interesting for me is that to go through the angst of teenage years within a construct of creativity and the misnomer about creativity is that it's not serious work and it's all play. And it's again, not serious. And the truth is from my experience, 
is that it's also serious because you are learning how to internalize things that will always support your pursuit, not as an artist, that will support your pursuit as a human being, because you will have understood what it feels like to be connected with something that brings you intense joy, intense creativity, intense passion, and intense community with other players. So most people do not go on to become artists. I was really one of a handful. But what you do carry forward is a the singular memories of a place like that and the singular experiences of it and the sense of what it is to be connected either in community or to deep curiosity about something that you'll pursue in your adulthood in college and hopefully the curiosity will turn into a passion you were asking about schoolmates of note yes one schoolmate of note has led an astounding career. Her name is Sonia Manzano. As soon as she graduated from Carnegie Mellon, where she went on to after performing arts, she auditioned for a brand new show called Sesame Street, and she played the character Maria for 40 years. Didn't you make an appearance on Sesame Street? No, I did not make an appearance on Sesame Street. I apprenticed in the editing room of Sesame Street during the first year. Really? Yeah, the studio was down the street from where I lived. There was a great big sign that said Children's Television Network. I was 17 and I was having astounding adventures in my life around that time. And I banged on the door and the old stage manager said, what do you want? And I said, I want to do something. And they sent me to the editing room where the main discussion in those early days were what would happen to the integrity of the show if they came out with a line of toys. <laughs> the big merch question. <laughs> the big merch question. And that was long before it became a, an empire. But I did get a chance to be on The Muppet Show and work with the brilliant Jim Henson. Do you remember your appearance on The Muppet Show? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, was it hard to work with The, the Muppets? Muppets? It was astounding to see how hard everybody worked to set up every shot. I mean, it took tremendous strategy to set up because you're sitting high on a platform so that the manipulators can be underneath and they're watching monitors as you're interacting with the Muppets. And within minutes, you have a relationship with the Muppets because they are so lifelike. But yes, I, I sang my song, Whenever I Call You Friend, with some of the Muppets. And I sang Don't Cry Out Loud with the life-size Muppets that were choreographed by the great Jillian Lynn, who choreographed Cats. But to see Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Jerry Nelson create these characters with all of those players and to go into their workshops and to see how the Muppets are built in stages was, I mean, it was amazing. Do you remember, did you get different direction in working with Muppets than you do with humans? Yes, you do, because they're, you know, you have to find your eyesight and, you know, not look at the camera, which is right behind them. And yes, but your imagination, your deep imagination takes over right away. So as soon as I would start singing with Kermit or whomever, in this chorus piece that they were surrounding the piano of, of whenever I call you friend, you know, you were in a relationship with them. And so, I mean, it was so dear, it was so beautiful. And to know that behind all these colorful creatures were humans that were manipulating was just really stunning. It was really stunning. 
Well, going back to your early days, so you were at this, what's now like a magnet school at the High School of Performing Arts. You also were at the Manhattan School of Music playing piano and harpsichord at the same well, I, time? No, no, no. No, I studied at Manhattan School for a while. I played harpsichord on the National Lampoon Radio Dinner album, where I played the character of Yoko Ono, and I was also doing the voice of Deteriorata, which is based on the famous poem Desiderata. I was also reading that, were you singing commercial jingles while you were in high school? Yes. The school, That's something. Yes. The policy of the school was nobody could do any outside professional work while you were at this public school, unlike the professional children's school, which was also in Manhattan, but that was designed for working acting children. But as it turned out, many kids were doing <laughs> jobs outside of school. But yes, I was earning a very good living at age 15 singing jingles. And that's where I met Barry Manilow and Patty Austin and Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson. Very big commercials, you know, for Morton Salt and McDonald's and Pepsi. Because Barry was, he, Barry Manilow was writing a lot of those jingles, right? He was. Yes, he was. And you were seeing them or writing too? Or what were you? Um, I wasn't doing too much writing in those days for commercials, but we became fast friends then. And we've been friends all these years. Do you remember any of the uh, commercials, any of the jingles? Yeah. Well, as I said, it was McDonald's and uh, Morton Salt and a lot of commercials for Canada, actually, for Eaton's, which is a big department store or was. And yeah, I mean, what I learned the most from singing jingles is to learn in terms of a performer, how to think on your feet, because you were frequently being given directions by the client. They were in the control room and they didn't always know how to convey what they were looking for with us creatives. And so we would have to try to listen in between their words to see what they were actually going for. But in those days, you know, there was always a bottle of scotch by them. And so they were having a big time throwing out directions and we were just sort of, okay, let's try this. But you really learned how to think on your feet as a performer. You were a kid then, right? You were. Yes. I started when I was 15. Yeah. So Barry Manilow became a lifelong friend. Did you ever collaborate with him? Well, we have sung together and I had him as a guest artist on my last album called The Fellas, which was my tribute. It was really the completion of an idea that started in 1989 when I created an album called Tribute, which was my tribute to several of the women singers that meant so much to me growing up. And I always wanted to complete it as an idea with The Fellas paying tribute to several of the men singers that were equally spectacular. And I reached out to Barry to see if he would consider singing on the only duet on the album. And he said yes. And he came up with this splendid idea to pay homage to Gene Kelly to recreate note for note the duet that Gene Kelly and Judy Garland sang for me and my gal. And yeah, it was it was really beautiful. Didn't you create something? Weren't you guys part of a backup singing group? For Bette Midler? Barry was, when I got to first know Barry, he had hired me to sing a demo of his. And then he invited me because he really heard the quality of my voice. I was playing in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I was playing at a club called The Focus. And he, as a young and new music director for Bette Midler, they were working at a club across the street from where I was playing at a place called the Continental Bathhouse. And on their night off, 
Barry brought Bette to see me perform. And she was at the beginning of her career. She'd been on the Carson show a couple of times, but they came to the show. And after my concert, I went over to say hi to Barry. Barry introduced me to Bette. And in those days, all of us young singer songwriters, we were traveling in packs. It was really a very exciting time. We were all very hungry for some kind of a publishing deal or record contract or performance someplace. And you know, so to meet Bet, it was it was really, really exciting. And I asked her what she was up to and told her how excited we were to see her on the Carson show. And she said she was getting ready for her first Carnegie Hall concert. And I said, because I was a background singer, I said, wow, are you going to have any background singers? And she took a beat and she said, I don't know, would you like to sing in back of me? And I thought to myself, actually, I'd like to sing instead of you, but I'd be happy to. <laughs> so I was the founding member of what became the Harlettes. And Barry and I put them together. We were originally called the Red Light District and then MGM because of our initials, Gail Cantor, Melissa Manchester, and the late Merle Miller. And then we became the Harlettes. And I worked for her for about six months. And it was really extraordinary to see what she was doing for the marginalized gay audiences. I mean, she was really galvanizing them with in particular with her song, You Gotta Have Friends. It became their anthem. It was her, her friend, Buzzy Featon, who wrote it. And she brought it to Barry in the way he tells it. She brought it to him on a rolled up piece of toilet paper. And he sort of looked at it and he said, what am I looking at? And he figured it out. And they start to perform it and right away connected with audiences. And the last time I performed with her was at Lincoln Center for New Year's Eve. And that is when Carol Sager was in the audience. And that's how she contacted me. So when you were part of the Harlettes, the backup singers, were you on tour or were you doing New York or tell me about that? No, we were on tour, but we were new at being an extension of her character of the Divine Missum. The Divine Missum was created by the late Bill Hennessy. That is striking in her brilliance. I mean, she's truly a brilliant woman. And as she speaks of herself, she says, I have the soul of a librarian. And she does. She loves research. She loves being surrounded by brilliant people. And she's an intensely curious woman, which has led to her Manhattan project and cleaning up the vacant lots in Manhattan. And she's just spectacular. But Bill Hennessy created the Divine Miss M. And when she was playing at the Continental Baths, he would whisper into her ear in the voice of the Divine Miss M. So by the time she walked on stage, which was about 15 steps away, she was already in that character. Aha, uh -huh, you know, and it was wild. And so the Harlettes really became that. And because she'd never been a background singer, so she just loved having a girl group to sing with. So we, you know, we sang Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. We were on all of her albums and I helped to create the vocal parts for all of us. And it was, it was just beautiful. And, you know, coming full circle, it was magnificent to pay tribute to her at the Kennedy Center recently. It was just lovely. So this is in the early 70s, I guess, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, your debut album released in 1973. So were you backup singing? and writing songs for your own? It took me about seven years to get a record contract. I started to make demos when I was about 15 years old and got summarily rejected by all different record companies. Like making demos back then, because you didn't have your iPhone. No, there was no such thing. There were no emails. There was no cell phone. There was nothing. You would go into a, a studio and 
you know, bring in some musicians. And over the seven years, I tried to get a recording contract and I couldn't. Was that only at the Brill Building, which was sort of the hub of it? Or did you? No, I never was. I never worked at the Brill Building. Carol Sager was a Brill Building. Who was one of your who's one of your songwriting partners, right? Yeah, she was my key songwriting partner. We were partners for about five years. But I had the great good fortune when I was 17 to study songwriting with Paul Simon. So I learned a lot from him. And that is frequently what I learned from him is often what I incorporate in paying forward to students that I teach in master classes these days. But I finally, while I was working with Beth as a harlot, as we were in deep rehearsal, we were working very, very hard to create something, create some kind of an entity. I had met Hank Medris and Dave Apple, and they agreed that they would become, and they were well-known producers. They played on, and Hank was the high voice on the original Lion Sleeps Tonight, a whim away, a whim away. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they set up an audition for me for Larry Utah, the late Larry Utah. He was the president of Bell Records which was a very interesting place. It was a singles label and they were investing in a new component of their company, which would be for album artists. And so I went up to the office of Bell Records and I, and the upright piano was facing a wall and there were all of the men <laughs> sitting to my left and I was singing song after song after song after song. And I was very tired that day because of all these rehearsals. And it was, you know, my umpteenth audition for some record company. And finally, I was done playing. And they said, thank you very much for coming. And as I was leaving, Mr. Utah met me at the door and he said, so how important is this to you, this career? And I said, well, listen, I will do this with you or without you. Have a nice day. And the next thing I knew, I had a contract. And I made two albums on Bell. Wait, were uh, you still in college then? No, no. I only went to college for one year. I went to NYU School of the Arts and I studied with the great Olympia Dukakis, but college was not for me and the acting program was not for me. And so you, had, you had originally gone into the acting program there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes. And I auditioned and it was very Esalen oriented at the time. That was just sort of the convention of the day in acting classes. But I paid for it myself because of my earnings from singing commercials. And then I left. And then the year that I left, my two friends who had hired me to be a singer for their songwriting when they would try to go up to get a publishing contract, Jeff Sweet, who's become a playwright of note, and Brett Mitchell, I would watch them write. And I finally went home and I started to write. And it was like, um, it was a real visceral gush. It was like finding a second language. And I would just start to write and write and write and write and write and write and write. And then I backtracked to one of the uh, publishing companies that they had brought me up to, Chapel Music, before it was Warner Chapel. And I played my stuff. I took my audition and they accepted me as a young staff writer. So I became a staff writer when I was 17. I was paid every week. Wow. How did you meet Paul Simon? Well, as I said, my two friends were still at NYU and they told me about this class that Paul Simon was, there was a little scrap of paper. I mean, again, there was no email. There was no blast email of anything. There was a bulletin board in the hallway and on the corner, there was a piece of paper that said songwriting and record production taught by Paul Simon. And we thought, 
Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel. So he was already Paul Simon at that point. Yes. Bridge over terminal waters was number one all over the world. Wow. What is he doing on East 7th Street? But we auditioned and I auditioned and it was amazing. It was just amazing. He auditioned everybody. I was living and breathing a singer songwriter by the name of Laura Nero. Not many people know of her. Oh, yeah. But she was really my muse. She and Joni Mitchell were my muse at the time. And also at the time, AM radio and FM radio were so filled with vibrancy in the new chapter of the American songbook. I mean, yes, some songs were still coming from the Broadway stage. You know, there were still great singers like Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and beautiful singers on AM and FM radio, but there were these new wave of singer songwriters that were just, just re-blooming a new version of the American songbook. And so lyrics were filled with new metaphors and more poetry. It was no longer Moon June Spoon. They were really reflecting, they were really starting to reflect the world around them. I mean, prior to that, the folk scene and Woody Guthrie were the only ones that were reflecting the world. I mean, when Woody Guthrie wrote This Land is Your Land, that was a protest song in the 1930s and it galvanized you know, those dust bowlers. And now we were in the late 60s, early 70s, and Sly and the Family Stone were creating Thank You for Let Me Be Myself. And Carol King was writing You Got a Friend. And, you know, Donny Hathaway was writing To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. I mean, it was just, it was just spectacular. And Laura Nero was reflecting that Upper West Side of Manhattan female sensibility that simply didn't exist. And Joni Mitchell was just was just writing such beauty, just such beauty, such deep wisdom at such early ages. And it was also appealing and attractive to me. So I wanted to be. And of course, it was there was the Beatles, you know, which were game changers and Stevie Wonder. So it was a magnificent time to be part of this new wave of singer songwriters. And I just I just found that also attractive and appealing. And when I met Carol Sager, who had hired me to sing on a demo after she had seen me sing with Bette Midler. And she said, do you write? And I said, I do. I write by myself. And she said, well, would you consider collaborating? And I said, sure. I don't know what that means, but yes. So I went up to her home and, and I did not know. I mean, I only learned many decades later that I was the first artist because she was a Brill Building writer. I was the first artist that she actually wrote with. So she was draping songs on me and with me. And it was great. It was really great. It was very efficient. We wrote rather quickly and we were successful. So with her, you had your first album, Melissa. Yes, that was the first album on Arista Records when uh, Clyde Davis took over. And I had my first hit, Midnight Blue, on that. that. Tell me about that when you heard it was a hit. Well, I worked very, very hard to help support that. I mean, having a career is a full body contact sport. You not only, in my case, write and record, I had a band by then, but then you go out and you tour and you do primary radio stations. Again, this is before MTV. This is right. So this is, you were really doing that hand-to-hand combat. Yes, exactly. 
you know, I was doing primary radio stations, then I would do secondary markets, then I would do college stations, which were very important. Then I would go into the record stores, which don't exist anymore, and sign things and meet people. And I did that with my tour manager across the nation. And when we got to Texas, we were being told from the main office in New York of Arista Records how the record was doing according to radio stations, how many plays it was getting, how many people were calling in to hear the song. And we left Texas, and I believe that's where I first heard Midnight Blue on the radio. What did and it feel like? That was really thrilling. Well, I'd heard myself plenty on the radio from singing. Yeah. But to actually hear a composition of yours where you have the experience, the sense memory of, I remember what the furniture looked like when I was sitting at the piano with Carol writing the song. I remember being in the studio to make the demo of it where I created that opening vamp because at that point, the song just started at the verse. We didn't have any arrangement. And I remember sitting with the musicians and my hands went da 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 And I said to them, play this play this. This is what I'm going to play. You accompany me. And so that became the identifiable opening vamp so that when I started to go on the road to support this Melissa album, when I started to play that opening vamp, the place would erupt because people recognized that opening piece from the radio. And, and it was very, very touching because these songs have grown with people and what not only never gets old, but has such a deepening quality in my soul of gratitude. You know, people tell you what your songs mean to them, how they have helped them not commit suicide, how they have helped they and their partner hold on to their relationship and work through it, how they have chosen your song to serenade them while they make a baby, how they chose your song to serenade them as they walk down the wedding aisle, how your song helped them get through a jail term or Vietnam stint or any of that or horrible childhoods or, I mean, it's just wild what a song can do. And in the beginning, you didn't see that coming. I mean, I knew what songs did for me, but I had a pretty festive and adventurous life. But to see how a song could be a life raft is no small thing. And to hear it over and over and over again, there's something of a spiritual component, which makes me grateful and supports me. I mean, in answer to your first question, is it hard to do what I do? It's very hard to do what I do. But that part, that part that your song was a life raft to people in some way, you know, you mustn't mess with that because that's very serious business. Would you have picked Midnight Blue as the breakout single from that album? I think so. I think so. I think it's a lovely composition and, and there's such tenderness attached to it. The thing that I have learned about the songs that Carol and I wrote, Carol Sager and myself, although we didn't realize it at the time because we were two young women in young marriages in the early stages of the women's movement, trying to navigate waters that were new and we didn't quite understand, but they were present all around us all the time. The thing that's interesting and consistent about the songs that Carol Sager and I wrote, which is touching for me now, is that there's a very, it's like smoke in the air. There's a very fine component of weariness. I didn't know that we would know about weariness. We were only in our early 20s. 
but there we were. And the truth is about life, as I'm sure you know, it just makes you weary. Among other things, it's thrilling and fulfilling and exhausting and heartbreaking, but there's something just weary about the day-to-day of it and in trying to negotiate relationships, particularly romantic relationships. But the thing about many of the songs that Carol Sager and I wrote, again, they were used, they were the voice, though that was not our intention, to sort of codify much in the, in the women's movement. There was actually one song that we wrote called Home to Myself that was used in the, I think, the one and only Ms. Magazine special called Woman Alive, which was on PBS. It was hosted by Gloria Steinem. One of the segments that they used, that they filmed, was about a woman by the name of Crystal Lee Sutton. She was the prototype for Norma Ray for the film Norma Ray. There's a scene in Norma Ray where she's released from jail because she's a union organizer. And she's released. And this is this is what happened. And she woke up her three children, her three children, they were little and they had three different fathers. And she explained to them what will happen at school. She'll be called a jailbird. They'll be told your mama is a jailbird and no good. La la la. So this is a real scene from real life that was used in the film of Norma Ray. Well, underscoring that film, that piece of footage for Woman Alive, they were kind enough to use a song that Carol and I wrote called Hum to Myself. And it was very touching. And it was the first time that certainly I, but that Carol and I had the experience of having a song have a different purpose. It was no longer just me singing. It was now underscoring a scene and it was lifting the scene. And I thought, well, wow, that's also possible. It's fantastic. Coming from the rain. It was covered by so many people. Yes. Which one is your favorite? Well, I don't have a favorite song. I mean, it takes so much to write a song. And, you know, you remember when you wrote it, what you were going through. And, you know, the thing about songs is you hope and pray for all of them to have wings. You do. And when something works, you're as surprised as when something doesn't work. You know, you just. Well, why do you think coming from the rain? I was reading it. It was covered by everyone from Captain to Neil, Rosemary Clooney, Peggy Lee, Barbara Cook, Mel Tormey, Diana Ross. Why do you think that spoke to so many people? I think, again, I think the heart of it has a real tenderness. And I think for somebody who's a solid singer, it has a beautiful range and it's a real monologue. And so I think because in those days we still had great singers all over singing beautiful songs, it resonated somehow So, yes, I think that's what it is. And then you also collaborated with Kenny Loggins. I did. Talk about collaborating with Kenny. Well, Kenny and I met each other often and frequently backstage at award shows because in the late 70s and the early 80s, they were making up new awards shows. It was no longer just the Grammys and just the Academy Awards. It was now the American Music Award and the People's Choice Award. And it was just sort of... Okay, well, and we were brought in to be presenters. So we would meet in the green room and, you know, Kenny said, you know, really, let's do something here. We're meeting so often. So he came over to my house and in the day we would write on boom boxes, you know, with little cassette tapes. So he came to my house and we wrote the song and then he went into the night and I never saw him again. And thank you very much. We wrote a, a swell song. But what I had learned from another interviewer 
who was interviewing me, but I just finished interviewing Kenny, you know, within the last three years, four years, that Kenny went over to play our song for our beautiful colleague, Michael McDonald of the Doobie Brothers. And Michael's reaction was very mild. It's just sort of nice. Okay. And that surprised Kenny and, you know, blah. But I didn't know about that. And I brought my cassette over to Clive Davis, who's the president of my record company. He had, you know, all kinds of history with hits and stuff like that. And he listened to the song and he thought, it's okay. <laughs> so- <laughs> I got, wait, just so everyone knows, it's whenever I call you friend. Yes. That's Ken- Kenny a prolific up- song. Yeah. Kenny ended up having the hit with Stevie Nicks. And, you know, it's in radio airplay to this day. And he did a beautiful, his opening vocalese was his tribute to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, which is lovely. And yeah. And so Kenny did it. And I just re-recorded it for my latest project, which is called Review, which will be my 24th album. And I'm, I'm reaching out to certain interesting artists to see who would like to do the duet on it. I think I have, I think I'm getting pretty close to one in particular. So that that's fun. Yeah. Oh, I have some, I want to put you in touch with. Cool. I think would be honored. Talk about don't cry out loud. I mean, all these are from my youth and my memories are being all stirred up. Yeah. They're phenomenal. Yeah. That's the thing there. The thing is, and Paul Simon wrote about this in a New York times magazine article decades ago, that at some point, the American popular song would move from melody driven to rhythm driven. And thank God my experience was coming from and being part of a melody driven consciousness. Now, most songs that you hear on the radio are rhythm driven. And I mean, it's fine. It's just what it is. But the challenge with a rhythm driven song is you don't get a chance to develop a melody or a lyric that much. Whereas with a melody-driven song, long ideas lyrically and melodically could be developed. And so was the case of Don't Cry Out Loud, which was written by the late and beautiful, my dear friend, Peter Allen and Carol Sager. And when I first heard Peter do it, it was a very quiet version. And I thought, well, this is just stunning. I can't wait to do it like this. Alas, in those days, I don't recall as an artist being part of the conferences from the record company about how best to interpret a song. Either I wasn't invited or I was too exhausted because I was on the road so much to participate. But when I walked into the studio and there were, you know, 50 musicians playing the original arrangement and I was in such shock and rage and fury and frustration, because that's not at all what I had in my mind to service this beautiful composition. So all of that rage and frustration worked (laughs) for my performance because it was a clarion call. But of course, I'm so grateful for the experience of it. And I'm so grateful for that initial performance and interpretation of it. It was arranged by my late friend, Barry Fosman, and Harry Maslin produced it. And it's become quite a standard. And now, however, I get a chance to perform it very quietly as originally intended. And it's, once again, it's a new song and it brings audiences 
closer again, and I'm told brings people to tears because part of what one does as a what I do as a performer is make the audience feel so safe that they can they are safe to remember things that they didn't realize they had forgotten. They are safe to perform for me and make the evening a communal experience. It's beautiful. Was that your first Grammy nomination? It either was the first or the second. The other one was Through the Eyes of Love. Yeah. We'll talk about either one getting a Grammy nomination. Do you remember? Well, you know, the Grammy nomination is a phone call to the management office and then they tell you and it's, you know, it's thrilling. But what was thrilling in particular about Through the Eyes of Love is that I had the singular experience of being the first artist to have two songs nominated for an Academy Award. And Through the Eyes of Love was one of them for the film Ice Castles, written by Marvin Hamlish and Carol Sager. And the other was called I'll Never Say Goodbye, a beautiful song by a lesser known film called The Promise. And the song was written by my beautiful friends, Marilyn Allen Bergman and David Shire. And that was a remarkable experience to sing on the Academy Awards. I was wearing my first Bob Mackie gown in very high heels. And the, <laughs> the director thought it'd be a very good idea to, <laughs> to have me walk down a flight of stairs in between songs with no banister. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Oh, oh, oh my word. I would have, I mean, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. And then I got a chance to sing two years later on the Academy Award. You know, in those days, unlike in my opinion today, those were very elegant affairs. You were singing with live musicians and everybody was dressed magnificently. And yes, it was quite an honor. So when you have these songs for films, how did that come about? Were the songs written first and then they took them or did you write them? Yeah, I didn't write these songs. I have written other songs for films. I've written for Disney. I wrote for The Great Mouse Detective and I wrote Lady and the Tramp 2. I wrote the score with Norman Gimbel. So I wasn't in the room when those writers were writing. I believe Marvin and Carol wrote the song after the film was filmed and they were just given, you know, this is a sequence. This is the timing. This is, you know, what you're writing. When I was writing for Disney, we were really in the beginning, sort of with the writers. They were showing us the different scenes that they were thinking of. And I would sit with my late writing partner, Norman Gimbel, and we would suggest to them what scene could be musicalized. And that's what we did. But when I wrote for The Great Mouse Detective for Disney, which was really interesting because for a while, I don't know why it didn't make any sense to me. Disney was not having music in their animated films, everything that had worked for decades. They wanted to take it out. So when The Great Mouse Detective was filmed, they wanted to reinstate songs into the film. And I was the third writer up at bat. They had tried two different composers to write for this little dance hall mouse. It was Uh, an animated feature. Yes, it was an animated feature called The Great Mouse Detective. And so I was the third composer. They had two other composers. I don't know who they were, but they didn't like what they came up with. (laughs) And all I was given was a sketch of movement. I was just given lines with a click track to write to. And I was given a breakdown of what this little dance hall mouse would be doing. And I thought to myself, well, 
I spoke to the art director and I said, well, this is family fair. You know, I see that she's in a dance hall and she's doing a little dance. I said, but you don't want, you know, let me entertain you from Gypsy, do you? He said, no, 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 it's family fair. You know, kids will be watching. Okay. So I wrote them a song and he said, oh, I like this. I like, I like the idea of it. And he said it in a way where I, where there were more spaces between his words. And I thought, and I said, excuse me, do you want me to write you a strip song? Like, let me entertain you. He said, yes, please. So I did. And it's called, let me be good to you. And it's in the film and it's very fun. And um, again, and you yeah. have, you have a role in the film too, right? Well, I sing her it's yeah. my singing her. Yeah. That's great. That was quite a cast in that. I was just looking at the cast. Yes. Quite a cast. It was a beautiful cast in that. And it was a beautiful cast in Lady and the Tramp. And that was fun because we got a chance to write a score. I mean, you know, we wrote plot songs and we wrote character songs and we wrote expository songs. And it was, I mean, that's, that's my joy. I just love writing for theater. So, and then where can we find your latest album? Where where can we see you? Yeah, the latest album that you can find that's finished is called The Fellas, and you can find that on all the platforms. But with Review, which will be my 24th album and should be finished later this year, what I've been doing during the pandemic is creating videos with a small village and releasing singles from Review, which are the re-recording of several of my charted hits. And so you can see those on my Facebook page. You can find them on iTunes. You can find them on my YouTube page on iTunes. You can find them on Amazon, all that stuff. And then more recently, I just found out that Bob Fosse's Dancing, which I had two songs in, in 19, I don't know when it was originally on Broadway, it's being revived. So it's going back to Broadway with my songs. So that's kind of cool. And then I'm working on other projects, but I'm back on the road. And yes, all of my ventures are listed on my Facebook page. And it's kind of a lively Facebook page. And on my Fanchester's official site for my sweet fans called Fanchester's. And we have a live that. I'm a Fanchester. Yay. I'm so glad. We know what we didn't talk about was you were on episodic TV for a while, right? I was. Yes, I created the role of Maddie Russo on the series Blossom. I was the wayward mother who left her children with their father and ran away to Paris. So that was very- Blossom was Mayim Bialik, right? yes. Yes, Mayim Bialik. Brilliant, brilliant child and has turned out to be a brilliant and accomplished woman. And along the way, you know, I marched in Washington. I sang at the Mother's March and the Million Mom March and sang the day after He Who Shall Remain Nameless was um, elected. I sang in front of 750,000 of our neighbors here in Los Angeles. And so that that has filled my plate as well. My last question, what would you tell that 15-year-old Melissa, when you were singing jingles and, and making some money, what would you tell her? I would tell her a few things. I would tell her that when in times of stress, to breathe, to trust your gut, if it's tightening, to trust that something needs to be explained again so you can fully understand it. And I would tell her to slow her brain down in times of anxiety so that you don't become separated from your logic and your wisdom 
and your language. I have <laughs> suffered from that in growing up. It took me a very long time to learn how to stay connected when I was dealing with management or business or lawyers or agents. It's very hard because as creatives, we mostly don't have that part of our brain blossom because we're so intensely hyper-focused on creating. So that part, which helps to run a business, helps to grow you as a human being, is the part that I would hope that I could mentor that younger part of me because I had no mentors. There were no women on the scene. There were not even men who would say, try this, try this, don't do this too fast. You know, it was just, we were just out there. Now I try to really be a mentor to my students if they're willing. You know, I hold on to their ankles as they're leaving my classes and hope and pray that they don't sign that stupid contract that will hurt them. But oh well, it's the intensity of having a creative life. It has such an urgent pull to it. It has such an insistence to be expressed that the balance of learning how to be a mature person shows up much later. It's very rare when those things are traveling at the same pace. The other thing I didn't mention was I really want to salute you as a working mother. It's a lot. Well, thank you. I, you know, you certainly don't do that alone. My kid's dad was a very supportive man. He was a very loving father. And my parents moved out to California from New York and really were hands-on grandparents. And yeah, it takes a village after all. It takes a village. Yeah, it does take a village. I am not, you know, when I read about, for instance, country artists who bring their kids on the bus and, you know, talk to the kids during the day and then go, I was so protective of my voice that, you know, I spoke to my kids in very tiny blips and bites, you know, and I always checked in with my kids. I mean, at some point, I did leave the road. I did. But my kids at some point gave me their blessing to go back. And we seem to be okay now. I love my kids and they love me. And I would have really liked them even if they weren't mine. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The nicest. I might steal that from you, (laughs) (laughs) but I will footnote you always. Melissa, this was such a joy and just my treat to be able to spend time with you. Because we're always at different events and, you know, running around. And Yes, well, thank you for all you do to make this world a better place. You know, you just try and do your little slice of it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you, Melissa Manchester. Thank you all for tuning in. Come back next week because we have actor Tramel Tillman, who stars in the hit Apple TV series Severance. We'll see you then. Thanks for hanging out with the Creative Coalition catch every episode by subscribing. And for more information about how you can help protect funding for the arts and harness the power of the arts to promote social good, visit us at thecreativecoalition.org. If you like At Home with the Creative Coalition, you'll love the Creative Coalition's new podcast series, On the Edge. On the Edge spotlights stories of opportunity, discovery, and courage and features incredible individuals whose unique stories are not always pretty, but always inspirational. New episodes are available bi-monthly. On the Edge with the Creative Coalition. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and more.